This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers, grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in and grab a bucket. We are talking ice fishing. Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter here, your hosts of Shack Talk Ice Fishing Podcast. We are back and we are talking about a species-specific segment right now and really excited to welcome uh, welcome this segment's guest, Mr. Tim Humphrey, Aspen Outfitters of Cass Lake, Minnesota. And we are going to dive off the deep end here on everything burbot or whatever name you want to call this fish, right? Uh, the fish You'll of many call legends. It lawyer, you name it. There's a bunch of different names for them. That is right. Tim, welcome to Shack Talk. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. So tell just to start off with Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a guide, you're an outfitter. What is it that you do every day when you, you uh, go off to work? Uh, so my regular job, I'm actually uh, work for Pepsi and Bemidji here. Um, been with them for 22 years. So um, I do sales. I work with the sales department, kind of do uh Fountain type stuff. So bars, restaurants, that's kind of my specialty, um, do contractual things. So, um, we cover about 60 miles around Bemidji. So I get out, I get the, the local fishing report all the time, you know, hunting stories and stuff with all the guys in the local area. Um, kind of see the ice conditions as the, the, the winter sets in and everything. So it's been really nice to, to be able to do that just cause I get to cover, you know, it, it's far enough away, you know, you figure an hour drive, so I can get out and, you know, I go to gas stations, convenience stores, sporting goods stores. I mean, anywhere where you're going to buy a beverage, I've probably been in there within our territory. So um, kind of nice meet a lot of people and, and kind of get, uh, if I, if I need info in an area, I can typically give somebody a call and, and, and get that. So that works out really well. Uh, as we all know, having those connections, getting that information and, and also being out and about seeing those things firsthand those are the building blocks to, to successful outdoor outings of any kind. So mm -hmm. yes, definitely. And then you, you have your second job or second business as the guider outfitter. Right. Right. Which, uh, it, it kind of, it, it was a hobby when I started. Um, I actually started guiding for rough grouse back in high school. Um, there was a couple that I know that had a, a cabin over here on Cass Lake and the guy had asked me if I could take him grouse hunting one, one afternoon or whatever, a weekend, if he brought some guys from Illinois over. And uh, I thought, sure, why not? You know, and well, we, we went out, it only took us about an hour and a half. We had our grouse. In fact, we saw more grouse walking out of the trail than we did walking in. And uh, so it was about an hour and a half probably. And uh, we got back to the truck and the guy said, well, that was great. You know, can we do this tomorrow? And I thought, well, I don't have anything going on. You know, sure. Yeah. Let's do this again tomorrow we got back to their truck and they pulled out $200 and said, is this going to cover it? And, you know, so basically I had maybe three hours into it start to finish from when I met them, went out into the woods and then got back to the parking lot. And I thought, wow, cool. Yeah, definitely. Let's go tomorrow. And uh, it kind of got the wheel turning. Um, so I started doing that on weekends and uh, it's kind of a roller coaster guiding for rough grouse. You have the cyclical season, you know, the, the, the highs and lows of the population. And then, um, you know, you have guys that are going to be around and they want to hunt in the middle of the week. And that, that didn't work for me then. I didn't have any vacation time at work and was new to the job and everything. So um, to try to 
advertise for grouse hunting and then just have two days for, you know, a period of like two months where it would be good, where there wasn't a lot of foliage and that type of thing. But when I started doing the, the bear hunting, which I also guide for black bear, um, I could bait in the afternoons after I got done with my job. And then when season would get here, I mean, typically bears are an evening type of an animal. So there wasn't a lot of hunting early in the day. It just got to the point where that worked really well. I'd get done with my job three thirty, four o'clock and I'd be in the woods till dark every night and do the baiting and that type of thing. And then going into the eel pout burbot fishing, you know, I ended up fishing a lot of evening crappies, walleyes in the evening. Um, so I was always that late night bite and, uh, eel powder always one of those things on a lot of our local lakes here if you're catching walleyes and the sun hits the trees and the walleye might bites you know it's going to slow down probably but you're going to get an incidental eel pout more than likely so i just kind of went into you know i don't want to be done fishing so i want to catch more of these so i'd stay out on the ice longer and you know kind of tried to figure these things out and uh, it turned into a perfect opportunity to take people fishing for these as well so here we are I love it. That's a great story. And uh, I've got to imagine, as you said, you were in high school when you started doing the rough grouse thing? Yes. Yep. To have someone hand you 200 bucks to take them out and shoot a few birds, that's a pretty good gig, isn't it, for a high schooler? Yeah, (laughs) definitely. A couple hours, too. So, yeah. Yep. That's cool. Great to see how or hear how it's it's come around to to the fishing side of it to complement what you do hunting and and, and Mm -hmm. all the other things as well. And so... You know, as we look at burbot here, so many times we, we hear about catching them during the, the ice fishing season. We don't hear a lot about them during the open water. With your familiarity with them as a species, why, why is that? Why is it we only see those fish in the wintertime? So uh, the biggest thing is the cold, cold water. They like the cold water. So, you know, you're, you can catch them after ice out, you can catch them during the summer, but they're going to be in a lot, lot deeper water than you would typically be fishing for other species. So, um, you know, if you look, look across the range of, of where the burbot eel pout live, you know, they're clear out into Wyoming, Montana, and then down into Utah, Flaming Gorge has a lot of eel pout. Um, they consider them invasive there. Um, and you can catch them open water for a pretty good chunk of the season because you've got that deep water and then all the forage is up high. So, you know, those fish are going to come up into 15, 20 feet of water every evening to feed. So those guys will catch them out of the boat one cast after another out there. But a lot of those fish are rather skinny. They look more like an eel than ours do here. And, uh, you know, (laughs) but uh, there are a lot of guys that catch them late in the fall here, fishing deep for walleyes. Um, and then early, early open water when the water temps are still cool. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to go anchor in 60 feet of water during the summer and try to vertical fish for these things and be slow and methodical and, and try to entice them to bite. It's just, you can do it. Me and several guys have considered, you know, trying to really target them and figure them out during the summer. But it seems like for me, I'm too busy to get around to that. Um, I'd love to. That's one of those things I want to know where they're at and exactly what they're doing, but just haven't done that yet. So. And for most people, I mean, burbot fishing is pretty much focused around ice fishing. It's one of those things where it's a time of the year thing as well, where the burbot bite really picks up. Exactly. So you look at, you know, the, the game fish species season closing in February, the latter part of February all the time. 
um, guys then look at what are they going to do for the next month and a half, two months of ice, you know, and panfish bite gets really good, but those guys that are still out working during the day, what are they going to do in the evening? And, you know, you can't go get walleyes, you know, you might be able to get out of a crappie bite or whatever, but bourbon is great. I mean, you know, they've got a mouth like a bass, they bite really hard, um, put up one hell of a fight and it's, uh, you know, if you had your fish house set up on a, on some walleye structure throughout the winter, um, you know, and you can leave it out there for a couple of weeks and still catch into, you know, get into some, some burbit just as they're starting to really move in and feed heavy and prepare for the spawn. You know, why would a guy refuse to do that? I mean, the, the clients I take out, um, you know, they, some of them go all over the place. They'll go to Canada fishing, you know, and do all these trips here and there. And, you know, they might make a trip to Lake of the Woods, Mille Lacs, Red Lake or whatever. Um, and you can go out and, you know, they, they consider a good day catching 40, 50 walleyes. You know, you might keep two or three of them, but you catch a lot of fish and you release a lot of fish. Well, on a really good night burbot fishing, we can catch those numbers, you know, and, and average size, you're looking at three and a half to five and a half pounds. So what, how, you know, what, what's bad about that? Absolutely nothing is bad about that. It sounds like a, it sounds like a blast. So for these burbot and eel pout, you're talking a little bit about, you know, having your walleye house set up or on some structure. Where do you typically find these fish in the lake? Where are you targeting them? Um, Can maybe break that down a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned the deep water um, and there's been some studies done with, with the fish, um, Bad Medicine Lake over here. There was some, you know, studies done on that lake um, where they GPS these fish. They tracked them throughout their movements through the course of a year, um, where what depth levels they were at and that type of thing. And uh, a lot of the fish really didn't move around the lake a lot. They were associated with that deep water. And then they consistently kind of went back up to that shallow water to feed all the time. And throughout the year, they would still go shallow in the evenings. But once you got um, that February timeframe in the winter, they spent a lot of time up shallow February through the mid mid March time. Um, and that's kind of what I see on a lot of the lakes that I fish. So if I'm going to look for a good eel pout habitat, I want to find deep water, ideally, you know, 50, 60, 70 feet or deeper, if it's available, um, that's where I'm going to target first. Um, and then I'm going to find a steep break. And it seems like a lot of times they're going to come up, Um, you know, you want to have it top off at anywhere from 10 feet. You know, there's some structure that I fish where it tops off at 30 feet, but a lot of times 20 foot range, you know, tops. And then I'm going to fish at 30 feet of water is where I'm going to start. And I'll drill, drill like a grid of holes, um, right along the break at 30 feet. And then I might drill four or five holes deeper each direction, um, just so I can cover that 15 feet of water down to 45, 50 feet. Um, you know, a lot of times I'll fish until dark at 30. If I don't have anything happening, then I'm going to start hole hopping. And generally I'm going to go deeper first. And if I'm not picking anything up, then I will try going shallower, but it's kind of a, a movement, you know, those fish are down in that deep bottom, some of those holes and everything. And then they're just going to work their way up that break and feed and, you know, their main forage is going to be crawfish typically. Um, you know, we're getting some zebra mussels in some of these fish um, and a lot of little perch fry. They eat a lot of little perch. That's interesting that you talk about the forage. I, I did not know that and I would not have guessed that 
they're they're foraging on crayfish, that they're foraging on zebra mussels. That's really interesting. If we look at the fish for, you know, the, the species of fish, the eel pout, they're not a pike, they're not a bass, a sunfish, they're not a walleye, they're not related to those fish. They're more related to a cod. Is that accurate? Right. Yep. Yep. Freshwater cod. And so, so they're different, it's, but they're a predator. They, they are a predator. You know, if you, if you look at them, they're, the shape of their mouth is just like a bass. We lip them like a bass all the time, like you're pulling up a big, large mouth, you know, just thumb in the mouth and, and pick them up. Um, the, it's, they don't have any teeth. It's kind of abrasive, just like sandpaper, you know, like you get bass some if you're fishing bass for a couple of weeks, you get the same thing with the bourbon. In fact, by the end of season, I've got electrical tape around my thumb every day and, and everything in a sore there for a couple, couple of weeks after season. But yeah. You talked a little bit about it. I think earlier they're coming up shallow, they're, they're feeding and they're preparing for the spawn. When does that typically happen? So it kind of varies through the range of the, of the eel pout. Um, here I typically look that first week of March into like the 20th of March. So there's about a two week window there. Um, you can kind of hop around from different lakes and there's actually different structure on different lakes. We'll have the fish spawning at different times as well. So, um, you know, there's different spots on leech where we can go out and it's a really hot bite. And the first week of March, the males are melting and everything and the eggs are just flowing freely out of the females. And then two weeks later, you can be at a different spot on the lake and the fish are doing the same thing. You know, one thing that I've figured out over the years of doing this is that it isn't a water temperature thing, of course, you know, cause that water temperature is consistent throughout most of the winter. Um, and it ends up being more of a daylight thing. So if I look at the calendar and there's a spot where I was fishing, say March 10th, well, and we did really well. Well, I can go back to that structure the next year and the next year and the next year. And right around March 10th, it is almost to the date when those fish come in and actually just start feeding during the daytime. You know, I talked about a nocturnal bite most of the, most of the winter. Um, you know, you can go out right now and catch a dozen eel pout on a good night. Um, you know, 20 eel pout even, but the next night you might only get three in that spot. So what happens is as, as those fish are moving closer to spawning, it's kind of like when you have panfish move into the, the spawn grounds and it's just, they, they eat everything just to get it out of there. It isn't even like they're hungry. You throw it, throw it, whatever you want, a bear hook right into the middle of the bed and they just grab it. Those big gills will just grab it and take it out of there. It's kind of the same thing. Anything you're moving around down there, when those male burbot are kind of clearing the grounds, they just grab it. More awesome. as much as a, a of a defense mechanism uh, or an aggression than it is actually a hunger re, uh, reaction. Exactly, exactly. Now, you know, one thing, um, of course, I've had Aquaview down and several different fishing cameras down to try to get as much information about these fish as I can. And one thing that I've seen is sometimes from a long ways off, they'll come straight at your lure and they'll just slam it. And then other times it's almost like they're blind and they'll go swimming past it and then they'll catch the scent of it and they'll do a 180 and smack it. And, and it's, it's really weird. So, you know, you've got this night feeding fish. So you figure, you know, like a walleye can see really good at night and everything. Um, it was almost like, I thought that the burbot could see really good in the dark and I'm beginning to kind of question what the, the factualness of that is. Um, we always use glow lures, you know, and, and if you don't have it glowed up, you're not catching very much, you know, and it's, so I'm, I really don't know. 
<laughs> after doing this for all these years, we're, we're trying, you know, everybody's always trying something new. Um, but you, you got to use a glow lure. You really do. Um, you want it to be heavy. You want it to stir up sediment and everything on the bottom. I prefer a one ounce jig. Um, big and nasty's got spoons and, and jigs and everything. Um, I was always using the Northland one ounce glow jig for years. Um, I just call over there and get a couple bags of 25 of them. And that would get me through, you know, through the couple weeks of season. Um, big and nasty started doing the, the jigs as well two years ago. And now Northland isn't doing the jigs. So, um, I've started using those ones. I've actually got some that I've modified myself with my own glow paint, um, which, you know, will go for about 40 minutes or so. And it's super bright. Um, but if you, if you don't glow up frequently with those regular glow lures, um, your catch rate's going to go way down, you know? So what um, type of uh, setup are you primarily using if somebody wanted to target burbot? So like I said, the one ounce jig, um, if you can get a longer shank hook, that typically works really good. And I like using fat heads. I mean, there's guys that use shiner minnows and different things cause there's more scent. Um, some places where you can use cut bait, um, you know, like Cisco's and stuff work really well. Um, some of the lakes where you can actually use eel pout, some of the guys will use the belly meat and everything off there, um, gives a good presentation and you'll catch a lot on that. Um, I just prefer fat heads though. They're cheap. They live really well. You don't need to do a whole lot with changing water and that type of thing. So you get a couple scoops of fat heads, that'll get you a couple nights and I always tail hook them. So you'll, you have your jig and you'll hook those two tail tail hook to both those minnows. They can both move freely and kind of swim and everything. So when you drop that one ounce jig, it sticks into the bottom. Those minnows are still moving and it kind of replicates a crawfish from my perspective, you know, so that that's up and that's right in their strike zone. They don't actually have to pick it up off the bottom. It's already kind of a couple in, you know, it's inch and a half, two inches up already. So um, you tend to get a lot, lot better hook sets that way too, where if you're using a spoon and you got to raise it up above the fish to get that bite, cause they're going to have, if you let it sit flat on the bottom, it's not as likely that they're going to be able to pick it up and get that treble in their mouth. So I like, you know, dropping that jig in the guys using the spoons, they tend to use their electronics more and try to get the fish to come up to that. Um, it's just more difficult. And then you're fishing after dark most of the time. So if you got a treble hook down there and you hook the top lip and the bottom lip and you reel up this burbot, well, you can't get your thumb in there to get the fish. You're getting the pliers to get them unhooked and you want to get back down in the water. Cause when the school of fish comes in, you might catch four, five, six, you know, and if you're messing with getting a treble hook out of the mouth, you might only catch two, you know? So speed is kind of a, of the essence, kind of like you're in a tournament, you know, you, the, the fish are there and you want to get right back in the water and get the next one up. Is it worth, you know, do you guys use, um, like a dead stick or an extra rod or do you primarily catch them jigging? Uh, we're pretty much jigging. You know, you hear of all the incidentals where guys are using rattle reels, dead sticks and stuff. They're sleeping in their sleeper house at night and then they pull up this, you know, massive bourbon on a, on a, on a rattle reel or whatever. But, um, we've actually put up tip ups and stuff when we've been out before, um, just to kind of cover some structure. You catch some fish, but really when they come in, um, and the bite is on, movement is good. You want movement. If you, you know, a little rattle on there, that always helps. Never a bad thing. Um, my son always had this thing where he'd take, uh, pop tabs off the cans and he'd put that on before he'd put his minnows on. So he get a little, little extra rattle with that. That's debatable if that worked better for him or not, but, um, he always thought he was going to one up dad by doing that. So there you go. Yeah. And then for, 
rotten reel setup your average walleye setup will do or do you use anything different i actually like like playing them out with a medium action um medium medium heavy um some guys will use trout rods and everything i kind of uh, i'm always i like going lighter than what you should you know for a lot of things that i do um yeah it's it's, it's one of those things where I'd rather catch a 10 pound walleye on six pound line and actually have to fight, you know, play it out and everything. than um, you know, have, have 10 or 12 pound test on there, a braided line and just horse the fish in um, light tackle, bigger fish, more fight, you know, a little more sport. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And I don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a trout rod too and having 20 pound test on there and just horsing the things in either. But, you know, I like having that rod bow down on me several times and peel out some drag and get the full effect of the fish. So as far as the, you know, the burbot, um, it seems like it's grown quite a bit in popularity recent years. Are you seeing that in kind of the guide business as well? Seeing other people out on the ice chasing them or is it still a little bit of a uh, it's, it's out of control now. It really is. Social media has, and partially to blame myself, um, you know, and a few of the other guys, um, you know, I started fishing for these back in high school too, incidentally. And then, um, like I said, as far as guiding form ended up being a little bit later, but it was one of those things where we'd catch one a night or two a night. And so we'd, we'd take them home and eat it. Um, it got to the point once I started guiding, of course, I had to self-promote myself and encourage people to go out and fish these and show them how much fun it was. And I'd go live on Facebook and things like that. And, you know, it'd be nothing to have 40 to 100 people watching me at night. And I'd do a fishing show live to where I'd catch 15, 20 eel pout in 45 minutes and call it wraps, you know, and guys would ask me questions and things like that. So, that was exciting, but now I have to even kind of watch where I go. If I take a group out, I have to watch who's around me on the, the winters where it's really difficult to get around. That isn't such a problem, but you know, if a guy can just drive his truck everywhere, you know, right now on the lake guys can get around with the minivans. So um, it's uh, I, I really got to watch over my shoulder and pay attention to who I'm fishing by and things like that. Cause I try to fish one spot if we take 10, 15 fish off of that spot per trip, um, I'll fish a different location. I'm not going to go back and beat up that same structure multiple times through the winter. Um, I'll try to totally fish a different spot early winter. That's easy to do to kind of hop around. But when I really start taking a lot of guys out and have a trip every night for say 25 days straight, it gets hard. Sometimes I just have to look at that calendar and say, here, I got to go to this spot because here's where the fish are going to be biting. And we go there. No holes have been drilled. We punch 20 holes and the guys are like, this is a spot. Yep. And cross my fingers and hope it works. And fortunately it's been good. But um, one of these days with all the pressure and stuff, I think that uh, it, it'll be an impact. You know, there's, there's still a lot of fish out there. One good thing about these though, is a lot of guys have taken the conservation step with it you know they really feel you know if they keep one or two they're happy with that and a lot of our lakes and fisheries would be substantially better if they had that same perspective on walleyes or whatever it might be because you know everybody's limit hungry and there are no limit on burbots so um you know i have some guys that'll show up and say oh yeah we brought two three coolers we're gonna bring back all kinds of meat and well even though there is no limit i used to let guys keep five now we're down to three guys that I have for two nights in a row, 
they'll catch their fish the first night. We might eat some on the ice. And then after that, they're content with catch and release. They really are, which it's great to see. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go out and get 15, 20 fish off of a spot. I really don't, but. And I'm sure we have people listening and they hear you talk about eating burbot. There's a little bit of a connotation that, you know, ugly fish probably doesn't taste good, but it's amazing. It is. It, it is so versatile. You can, you can boil it, you can fry it, you can bake it, you can pan fry it, you can smoke it, pickle it. it I mean, whatever you want to do with fish, you can do it with burbot, really, seriously. Yeah, and, anything uh, you would do with a cod fillet that you'd buy at the store. No, exactly, exactly. A lot of times if I cook fish for people, um, we'll do burbot tacos. Um, I've got a little seasoning that I use, and I've done some videos on that as well. Um, just bring tortillas out. There's a, t- a local sauce that we have. It's called Taco Gringo. It's kind of like a Southwest ranch. Um, so I bring some coleslaw, some shredded cheese, um, you know, three, four tacos pretty much is the norm for majority of the people. Um, kind of like street tacos and, uh, it breaks the night up. We'll get set up. Guys will start fishing. We'll catch a couple fish. Typically I'll have uh, a couple fillets from a couple nights, you know, prior to that. And then, uh, I'll start cooking those up. Hopefully then the bite starts, we'll get a couple tacos in us and then finish out the night. So. Maybe just walk us through real quick, just how do you fillet a bourbon? Because I'm sure for most people, I know myself, but you don't clean it like you would a panfish or a walleye. How do you, what's your approach for that? Okay. So a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll take your fish, you'll throw it on the cutting board and you're going to lay it on its side. You're going to take that knife right behind that, that fin, you know, right by the gill. And you're going to just cut right down right till you hit the spine. And then you're going to start following the ribs. Well, if you do that on a burbot, you're going to hit a lot of internal stuff. You know, there's a lot of liver. There's going to be bile all over the place and stomach contents. Um, It just gets really messy. There's a artery that goes through there, so it's going to be really bloody. Um, So I do tip the fish on its side, but you can feel where the ribs come out to to the belly, kind of like on a catfish on the side there. And I'll just make a little incision down to the spine, but I won't go beyond the ribs. I won't cut down into that stomach area. So then, you know, like if uh, I'll cut along the spine, just like you would if you were going to flay a walleye or whatever. Um, And then once I get past the belly, I'll go all the way out through the vent and then take take the fillet off all the way to the tail. There aren't going to be any bones in that part of it. So you end up with this nice triangular piece on the back, on 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 the tail part. And then you have that loin still that is still attached to the fish up at the top. And I'll just follow the ribs and you just kind of roll that out so you hit that stomach skin and then you can just cut, cut through the skin there and take it off. So when you end up, when you're done, you end up with this long fillet with the loin on the front and then it wides out and it's kind of like an arrow. Then it goes back down to the tip of the tail. So a lot of times then I'll just cut the loin off and keep the tail meat separate from the loin meat just because of the thickness of it and everything. So easier to cook it if you cook all the loin meat together and the tail meat separate. So, And I'm sure for most people you've heard the term poor man's lobster. Is that a way that you prepare it as well? Yep, definitely. Um, a lot of guys like to cook their fish in like seven up or a lemon lime soda, Sierra mist, whatever. Um, I actually like rinsing the fish and then I'll actually just kind of soak it for 15, 20 minutes in the soda. You know, you can use Mountain Dew, whatever. Um, that gives a little bit of sweetness because that, that fish is ready to absorb whatever you put on there, you know? So if it's a salty or sugary solution that it's in, it'll soak that up that, you know, it doesn't take very long for that to like marinade. Um, you know, one thing, if you just cook it in the seven up or whatever, you know, like, 
I guess if, if you were going to fry fish, right. And you do it, you put it in there, the oil doesn't actually go into the meat because once that meat's cooking, the moisture in the meat is forcing out and it keeps the oil out of the meat. It's kind of the same thing. I look at it when you cook it in the seven up, it doesn't really penetrate in and provide that, that flavor. But if you soak it for 20 minutes, half an hour, and then pull it out, rinse it off and then drop it into boiling water, you get a lot more sweet taste out of it. Um, it doesn't take very long at all. We'll cube it up one inch cubes or whatever and boil it. It'll float to the top really good. And then just strain it out, dip it in some drawn butter it's good stuff. It really is. That's great insight. And you're making me hungry already here, Tim. Uh, we're talking with Tim Humphrey, Aspen Outfitters of Cass Lake, Minnesota. We're talking eel pout, burbot, lingcod, uh, lawyer. Yeah, Anthony, you, you listed them all out earlier here. And, and I, <laughs> there are as many names as there are people out trying to catch them. Tim, you mentioned earlier, you said, you know, three to five pound average is not uncommon, right? And we were just talking about um, ways to, to keep clean and prepare eel pout. So is it the three to five pounders that you would consider the eaters or are you targeting some of the smaller fish to keep and harvest? How do you kind of delineate what size is appropriate? All right. So 23, 24 inches is kind of the tops that we keep. Um, we try to be, you know, going back to conservation. If we can tell it's a female it's going back in the water regardless of what size it is. So 24 inches, you really get a good amount of meat off of the fish. Um, You know, anything really, if you're looking at 16, 17 inches, it really isn't even really worth keeping at that point either because that loin is so small, the tail meat, you don't get a lot of meat on them. There's a lot of stomach. Um, So 20 to 24 is probably the best to keep. And then anything over that, we always let it go. That's great, easy to follow guidelines and and great advice. Let's talk about the top end of that spectrum. So what is considered a trophy eel pout? And maybe with that, what's your personal best? Uh, So my best is 13.3. I think, uh, you know, like world record is 24 pounds and something. Wow. Um, Yep, up in uh, Manitoba. State records just over 19, so um, which it seems like every year now there's quite a few that are caught on Lake of the Woods because more people are actually trying to fish for them when they're not walleye fishing up there. So um, there are going to be some bigger ones that are caught probably, but um, you know, really, uh, if you like look at the Eel Pout Festival in Walker that they have every year, um, typically in order to be in the awards part of that you would have to have a fish 12 pounds or better to kind of get you in the top 10 to win some prizes. So typically every year there'd be something over 12, um, as high as 14, something 15. Um, I know that I've had several fish that were in that 15 pound range that were up to the hole and they end up coming unhooked. Um, you know, nothing more, you know, it's, you're fishing in an eight inch hole. So you got to get that eel poet head just positioned right. And when you get them up close, they like to barrel roll, you know, kind of like a northern. They just start rolling on you, and you'll get the line wrapped around them. The biggest fish I had on had done several rolls, and I'm kind of un- unraveling this eel pelt like it's a spool down there, and I'm pulling up on the line really slow, and the fish is pretty wore out. So, And then as the fish turns and the head starts to come back up the hole, I just there's a little bit of the skin on the lip was all that I had hooked in there. And I, I started to reach down the hole and the hook came unhooked and the fish couldn't swim down the hole. 
but I couldn't get my hand around the nose of it to pull it up the hole. So as I reached down in there, the only way the fish could go was down. And I, I backed my hand up for a brief second, hoping the fish swimming would come back up the hole and it just didn't move. It just slid right out of sight and then I couldn't grab it. So, Oh, what a heartbreaker. Oh, it was, it, it really was. But you know, you can, all the holes that I drill every evening, I can't go out there drilling 10 inch holes all the time, expecting to catch a big one. Cause that just, it doesn't happen. You know, five, six pound fish will go up an eight inch hole. No problem. But something that size, you've got to get it just right to get it up there. Well, Tim, thanks again for, you know, joining us, talking a little bit of burbot, talking eopout. If anybody has any questions for you, what's a good way for them to get a hold of you? Well, they can look me up on Facebook, Aspen Outfitters. Um, I've got a page on there. I don't have a website anymore. Hard to justify spending money when a lot of the guys just come back every season. So, um, or they can reach me on my cell phone, 218-760-6527. They can email me as well, aspenguide at yahoo.com. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you joining us, talking eopout, everything burbot. Um, you know, it's a species that maybe doesn't get enough recognition for being a predator fish, and I know it's gaining popularity, and Kyle and myself have talked about it a few times about targeting them and, and different things, and I think it's something that we're kind of lucky to have in our area as another species to target. So, again, thanks for joining us. Um, for anybody listening, yeah, definitely. Um, just stick around. We'll be back with another segment in just a short break. Welcome back to our second segment in the Shack Talk podcast here. And we're going to be focusing on one of our destination topics. It's a topic that we've covered in the past, and it's really fun for both Kyle, myself, and a guest to talk about a destination, maybe somewhere that we're looking to go to, somewhere we've never been, or maybe somewhere that we're just trying to get the word out on, maybe something that's you know hasn't been maybe in the spotlight for a, a great destination for being on the ice, but we're going to be joined in this segment by a good friend of ours, Matt Deitch, and he's going to be talking about Lake Okaboji. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Have you uh, ventured out on the ice yet this year? I uh, have gotten out there a few times. Uh, one small local lake here by where we're at, and then over to Lake Okaboji one time as well. So we got, we've got pretty good ice now. We had some rain today, so hopefully that didn't really – have too much of an effect on it, but I guess we'll kind of wait and see. Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting year for ice, um, not only here, but in the southern area of the ice belt. I mean, things are slowly progressing, but boy, it sure uh, sure doesn't want to get going very fast. No, it doesn't seem like it. I know like Spirit Lake, I think some guys were talking about starting to bring sleeper houses, sleeper houses out there this week, but uh, other than that, when we were in Okaboji the other day, I think we found seven to eight inches of ice. Guys were starting to use the ATVs and the snowmobiles to get around, but it's still kind of iffy, especially if they're going to be traveling around in the basins. In West Okaboji, that always takes longer to get really good ice on it. So that one's still, you kind of got to check as you go when you go out. So Matt, what is, um, what's typical for a year? And I, and I look at this year and I think we, we got a really early start on the cold snap, at least we did up here in North Dakota. And then it sort of stalled out and it's, really continued in that stall we haven't had those below zero temps what would you consider normal for okaboji and and what you expect in a normal winter well in a normal winter i'd say if we can be out there 
you know, mid-December is when guys really can start kind of hitting the ice with like the foot traffic and everything like that. Uh, once the new year hits and into January, like we are now, that's when you usually, usually typically start seeing more travel out there on the lake. But yeah, this year and the last few years, it's, it's kind of been a slow progression to get to being able to really move around the complete lake. Awesome. For uh, our listeners, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, why you're passionate about Lake Okoboji, kind of where you live, and uh, maybe we'll dive into just kind of breaking down the lake a little bit and what it has to offer. Yeah, well, I live in Rock Rapids, Iowa, up here in the northwest corner of Iowa, um, about an hour away from Okoboji. I grew up in this area, spent a lot of time going over there and fishing. I can remember a lot of trips, our annual New Year's trip with my grandpa and my dad over there to chase the big bluegills that are in the lake. Spent a lot of time over there during the summer, doing a lot of fishing as well. Uh, when you can get on the lake during the summer, that is. Uh, you guys know we talked about a little bit that it's a very recreational lake during the summertime. But, uh, yeah, just kind of grown up fishing down there. Just love everything it has to offer, both open and on the ice. Is there, I know you mentioned bluegills, is that kind of what uh, what you like to f- focus on over there? What else uh, kind of species it, does the lake have to offer? It is. We uh, we really target the bluegills quite a bit on Okoboji. Uh, Okoboji is unique. It's kind of a chain of lakes. When we talk about Okoboji, there's West Lake Okoboji, there's East Lake Okoboji that go down into a chain of Upper Gar, Minnewashta, and Lower Gar. They're all connected through bridges and little waterways. And then there's Spirit Lake that is, they're connected, but you can't get to them by boat. It's just a little spillway that connects them. So uh, when we're when we're on Okoboji, on West Okoboji, it's mostly targeting the panfish. I mean, you can get a mixed bag in there. It's really known for its bluegills. And actually the crappie fish in the last few years has really started to become more popular and increase uh, good perch fishing down there. And actually the last... Well, it's been there for quite a few years. We have something that's a, called a yellow bass. It's an invasive species. And, you know, when it first started out, it was kind of a nuisance thing, but it's kind of grown into a lot of people really enjoy them. And they're a lot of fun to fish. They kind of travel in little wolf packs is what we call them. And when you can get onto a school of them, man, watch out it because it's, it's nonstop action. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of our focus is on the bluegills and on the yellow bass when we're over there fishing. Matt, as a body of water, uh, you mentioned it's a chain of lakes, right? And, and you right. know, up here in, in our part of the world, we're, we're a little bit north of you, but a lot of the chains up here are, are connected because of flowing water, right? A river going through connecting numerous lakes. Is that the case down there? Do you have current in some of those areas? There is. There is some current in some of those areas, and uh, you, you target those uh, you see a lot of it, like I said, the spillway coming into East Okoboji up on the north end. A lot of the times there's a lot of good current there and you can get into a good bite, especially open water, like early in the season. A lot of guys will go down there and target different species. You know, our walleye season here closes just like up in Minnesota too and holds on. So a lot of times you're, you you can't target those, but there's other species that utilize that too. So are you, um, d- does that bring about some risks when it comes to ice season? Just with, well, definitely. with the, the current areas like that, things, places. Yeah, are... yeah. you got you got to be careful around like the bridges and just like anywhere else. I mean, they, they always ice up late. It never fails. A few people every year try to drive a vehicle underneath the bridges and in those areas and they end up going through. Luckily, they're not real deep in some of those spots. But yeah, you definitely got to be careful around those areas. 
you talked a little bit about the different chains within the lake. Um, what type of features does the lake offer? What are you looking for when you're going out to target some of these fish in the wintertime? Well, when you talk about West Okaboji, it's, it's really crazy with them being a chain. A lot of times they set up a lot different. West Okaboji is a deep, clear body of water. I mean, crystal clear. You can be in 30, 40 feet of water sometimes and see the bottom. Uh, there's a lot of structure in there, a lot of rock piles and a lot of weed beds where we really focus on finding the weeds. And then if you can find that rock transition with the weeds and the rock on them, you can usually get into a pretty good bite there. Trying to find weeds that are alive, not just the old dead weeds is always a key too. I mean, you guys know all that stuff. Uh, so that's what we're kind of primarily really focusing on when we're chasing these, a lot of different contours, utilize our lake maps to see where some of those humps are out there. Uh, there's a lot of saddles as well that the fish like to congregate around. So that's kind of what we're usually kind of looking for when we're targeting these fish. Is that something that uh, the lakes are pretty well mapped um, for people that are interested in heading over that way? I mean, are you able yep. to kind of dial in some of those things? Yep, it, they are. Most of the lake maps, the different sources that have them a lot of the stuff on the cell phones now too they seem to be pretty accurate uh, as to what it sets up to uh, we haven't been able to utilize none of them none of the guys i fish with we don't have any of the live scope or anything like that to chase these things around yet but i have some friends out that do and that makes it a lot of fun it really helps when we're chasing if we're after the crappies up there in the basin as much as they like to roam you can utilize that and like i said east lake sets up a little different that doesn't get as deep as west west like i said will get to 100 foot at its deepest point maybe a little bit more east you know if it gets to 25 foot that's kind of the that's kind of the deepest it will get and, and that's not as clear as west is like i said west is gin crystal clear which makes it tough east is usually a little bit cloudier water so you know sometimes the fish over there aren't as finicky as they are on west okaboji Matt, you mentioned crappies, right? And we had Blake Tollefson on last episode talking about crappies. And one of the, the discussion points we kind of veered off into was was the black crappie versus white crappie and how as you kind of extend further down into southern range, you get more of those white crappies. Which which is it that you're targeting over there in Okaboji? Most of the time, ours are usually the black crappies. We're not getting, I mean, there's not, you get a mixture of them sometimes, but nothing, we don't get into any real big ones. I saw somebody that I know the other day got a 16 incher and, you know, and that's, I mean, no matter where you go, that's a nice crappie, but for around here, I mean, that's still getting to be a pretty big one. So a little bit of mixture in with both of them. For anybody that maybe, you know, doesn't target panfish that often, is there a pretty decent uh, walleye bite, uh, other predator type fish through the ice over there? Yeah, we got, you know, the walleye bite, especially on Spirit Lake. Spirit Lake is a little bit more well-known for the walleyes. West Lake does have some good ones in them, and actually East is a really good walleye lake too. Uh, so that's another option for people out there. There's plenty of northerns, just about like anywhere in the country. Uh, we have a, a great population of muskie too. That's one thing that's always, that kind of made me fall in love with fishing West Okaboji is you'd be sitting there fishing panfish, and all, they'd all scatter all of a sudden, and here would come like a 50-inch muskie swimming through the hole. I mean, and with it being like an aquarium, you could see them down there. So you can imagine. I mean, we've all been there. As a kid, you see that coming through, and it's just like, I mean, even now as an adult, 
your heart gets pumping and you, you, I, you stop fishing actually is what you do because you're just like in awe of it down there. And so, yeah, there's plenty of Northerns. A lot of guys like to run tip ups because obviously down here we can run a few more lines. So you might as well put a couple of rods out for dead sticking. Or like I said, if you want to throw a tip up out there, it's always a good time too. Is that something with the clear water that you end up find yourself doing, doing some sight fishing like that? Or are you kind of relying on your electronics? We, you know, growing up, that's all we did was sight fished. Um, I didn't really get in, get into electronics until when I really started getting into it heavy a handful of years ago and stuff like that. And now we utilize them both at the same time. But yeah, before it is fun to sit down there and watch them and you can learn a lot from it. Um, because you're seeing how the fish reacts. So now we've been able to take what we've learned sight fishing them and kind of put your electronics down there so you can see how it's doing it on the screen and how the fish is doing it down there. So then when you do get into a cloudy body of water, you can kind of relate those two together and be like, all right, this is kind of what they're doing down there now. And we always talk about the the Okaboji back shuffle for the bluegills. I mean, you're sitting there, you're jigging, and they come flying in there and you're like, all right, this thing is going to hammer it and they get right up to it and they just boom hit the brakes and they just stop and they just sit there and stare at it and i don't know it's caused me a lot of frustration over the years too got the redneck live scope not the not the true right. live scope yeah right i get a kink in my neck with the live scope that i do then you know so that you know that's something that's new to me too is all the long rods all the everybody's using you know the 34 inch whips and the 30 inch rods i just i'm still not real comfortable with the longer rod in my hand i'm so used to having a smaller rod because you're sitting there over that hole the whole day that uh it, it makes it a little easier when you have a shorter rod that's a, a consideration i hadn't really thought about but sight fishing is certainly a I mean, it's a viable tool as you're there and you can see what's going on and and uh, those shorter ice rods are going to be a little more conducive to fish in that style hey matt let's let's take a break from the fishing part of it and see how good you are in terms of uh, the surrounding community and the Okaboji travel and, and uh, tourism side of it. Oh, all right. What, what does the, the community down in that area have to offer? Like, I mean, when, when we're talking about a location like this for a lot of ice anglers, you're going to be driving there. Um, right. Lodging resorts, boat landings, boat ramps, things like that. Uh, what do they have to accommodate uh, somebody who's going on a destination trip? There is, there's quite a few hotels down here for guys to use. There's a few smaller motels too, where a lot of, you know, people with trailers, if you have anything that needs to be plugged in outside, they accommodate to that. A lot of, um, like I said, little resorts. There's a few of those on the lake boat. As far as boat landings goes, there's a ton, there's all kinds of boat landings and access onto these lakes. Uh, Just on West alone, I know of, just off the top of my head, there's like four or five of them actually that you can get on pretty easily to the lake. I mean, the, they do a good job of keeping all the parking lots clear so that there's plenty of parking. They're really big parking lots. I mean, that's one advantage, I guess, to this with it being a summer recreational place is they got to accommodate for a lot of these places. So there is a lot of parking available and a lot of big parking lots. Okay. So if it's a recreational place, there's got to be some really good, like, restaurants and bars there's some pretty good places to grab a bite to eat down there there definitely is there's a lot of nice little restaurants and the great thing is there's a lot of them right on the lake in fact the other day when we were out fishing 
one of the spots that we were fishing, there's a restaurant right on the shore right there. And there's guys walking over there. They ordered their pizza and they go up there and grab the pizza and they're walking right back out on the ice with it. So, I mean, yeah, that's definitely makes it pretty nice. That's pretty cool. And something you can't do in every ice fishing destination around the, you know, around the ice fishing world. Um, right. That's kind of an exception, right? I mean, there's a few locations you can do that, but most of the time you're a, you're packing your food in, you're packing everything in, and it's kind of a, a big ordeal, but to have that convenience is really nice. Anthony and I talk a lot about this. We talk about going to a, a destination and checking out the local bait store, the local uh, sporting good retailer. Any advice for folks who might head that way, your favorite bait shop, your favorite dealer, some of the places they want to make sure or you want to make sure that they stop in at? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of bait shops at the lakes area over there. Uh, one that we really like to use is a little bait shop called Stan's Bait and Tackle. It's in Milford, Iowa. It's just on the south end of like Okoboji and stuff. But uh, they have their supply of ice jigs this year is crazy. They have every, about everyone you can really think of, uh, all kinds of rods, different reels, bait. I mean, they they always have it plentiful there. And, the, and then there's some other ones in in there too that there's a new one called Oak Hill Marine that just started up this year. That's a, that's a nice bait shop. And then cables, bait and tackle. That's kind of on East Okoboji on the upper end that a lot of people like to utilize too. All three of them are great. They're going to tell you where the hot bite is, um, what you need to use, what's been working, how the ice conditions are. I mean, Travis at Stan's bait and tackle, he goes out weekly and goes gives live reports from the lakes of what he's drilling. He's drilling the holes out there, telling you what they have for ice, uh, trouble spots where there's you know spots to avoid, what to watch out for, and stuff. So you know it's, they do a really good job of making sure everybody gets well informed over there. Well, and a lot of times it's the areas to avoid that are just as important as those right. areas you want to be focusing in on. Um, That's for as sure. far as safety and and things like that are concerned. All right, Matt. So. You're talking about some of the local bait stores. You're talking about some of the local establishments. Are there certain nuances that are just really kind of unique to Okoboji in your area in terms of how you fish, maybe bait you use, lures you use, certain types of techniques? Yeah, I think that one of the unique things is just how much of a finesse technique you got to have at Okoboji, especially on West Okoboji, like I said, with as clear as it is. You're downsizing a lot of times. I mean, you're running three millimeter jigs. I mean, trying to get as small as you can. One pound test line sometimes. I mean, it's it can be ultra finesse sometimes, a lot of times. And a lot of people don't utilize it like they should. I think a lot of us just, you know, kind of have the same thing. And we go over there and it's just like, oh, the fish just aren't biting, you know, today. But a lot of the times if you can downsize and just see what the fish want that day, you can still have success. They always say the fish are biting somewhere, right? You just have to make them oh, bite. That's right. I mean, you got to try it. Obviously, if, what's, if you're using something and it's not working, it, you try something different. You might all of a sudden just, you know, get on a great bite. Talking about great bites, I'm sure you've got some good stories from fishing down there. Anything that uh, sticks out that, uh, you know, a memorable moment down there on the lake or a personal best or something that you'd like to share? Um, a memorable moment. I guess isn't just like a fish or anything like catch down here. A lot of times there's a lot of community holes down here that a lot of people use. And, uh, one time I was fishing and I had to tip up out on my, sh in my shack and, 
next thing I know, I hear a vehicle come driving out there and pretty soon I can't see my tip up anymore because the vehicle parked in between my shack and my tip up and they got out and just started fishing. So it's just, I mean, just something comical like that. And I just said, Hey, just let me know if that goes up. Could you do that for me? You know? So like a good fish down here, actually this summer when I was fishing, like I said, with the muskie in the lake, I was out catching some bluegill and I was reaching down to grab a bluegill out of the water and I had about a 40 inch muskie come up and try to take that thing right out of my hand. So that kind of was kind of a memorable moment for me. That's exciting. No doubt about it. You want to get your hand out of there as quickly as possible. (laughs) Yeah. For a second, you don't really know what's going on. It kind of catches you by surprise and you're like, Whoa, that could have ended worse than what it really did. Wow. Definitely. We talked a little bit about, you know, when the season starts, kind of what to look for, how long does your season run for down there? And, you know, you know, what are your kind of the progressions of the season? Do you see those fish kind of shift from the weed lines to a basin and then kind of maybe walk us through how long you'll be out there? Yeah, it, you know, just like typical early season patterns, you're kind of finding that good weed line and seeing where the fish are holding. Eventually, you know, you'll get some wanderers out in the basin. Uh, one big thing just about like anywhere is you just got to stay mobile with a lot of those fish and you're going to keep on them. And like I said, with a lot of the community holes, around here. One tip of advice I give to people is, you know, get away from the crowd. A lot of people just like to stay right close to that crowd. And if you can get away from them, you might stumble onto something pretty good over here. As far as our progression, our season progression goes, usually we can stay on the ice all the way up to early April. A lot of times, I mean, our ice holds pretty well over here. And the last few years, last year, it came out pretty early. Actually, I was out in the boat at the end of March already over here. And, uh, but usually, you know, that mid March range is when it starts to get kind of soft ice and it gets to be kind of sketchy out there and you probably want to stay off of it. Is there a better time of the year? What's your kind of favorite time to be out on the lake? I actually really enjoy the later in the season. You know, this early stuff is nice. You can get out there just because a lot of us haven't been fishing for a while so you get that itch you get out there first ice and you get on them pretty good but then i don't know the last few years we've done really well late ice over on those lakes over there the water starts trickling through the ice gets the oxygen yeah. down there those fish really start to turn on i know you yeah. talked a little bit about the bait shops and stuff are they pretty active on social media to kind of know when those ice conditions maybe are changing for someone that's heading mm-hmm. that direction Yep, they they are always giving updates. Expect you know, early and late season, they're really doing it. They do an awesome job of it. Like I said again, Travis is out there. He's drilling the holes. He's measuring it, kind of telling you what we're seeing. And yeah, it they make it really nice. Yeah, I definitely think that's something in today's day and age, utilizing social media, following, you know, maybe where you're planning a destination. There's a lot of information that you can gain from that. So I think that's really great tips for the listeners. Yeah, for sure. We are talking Lake Okaboji and the surrounding area with Matt Deutsch. Matt, as we, we kind of wrap things up here, if folks want information, and a lot of times when we talk about things on the podcast, we'll get messages, we'll get questions, and we want certainly want to make your information available if you're willing to field some of those questions from folks. Where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they reach out and ask questions about your part of the world? Yeah, um, get a hold of me on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, pretty easy to find. Uh, actually, my friend Scott and I, we have a podcast that we do as well called the Midwest Angler Podcast that uh, we talk about Okoboji a lot on there. 
I mean, we have a Facebook page there. Don't be afraid to message, message that. Uh, we can get you, at least we can get you pointed in the right direction if we can't answer your question for you. We can get you in, in touch with, we know a lot of the guides over there on Okaboji. We fish with a lot of them all year round, uh, talk with them quite a bit. So we can get you at least in the right direction if we can't get it answered for you. You know, and that's just a recommendation that I, and, and Anthony is is in the same mindset too. If you're planning a destination trip somewhere, Get in touch with the experts from that area. Get in touch with a guide. Even consider hiring a guide to take you out yeah. for a day. Oh, yeah. Maybe maybe you're fishing for four and you hire a guide for the first day or maybe two and you venture out on your own after that. But that knowledge of that's been accumulated over the years from people fishing it, you know, who live in that area is just invaluable. So uh, I appreciate your willingness to, to field folks' questions and, and accept uh, – Kind of some requests for guidance when they're when they're looking to come visit your area of the world. So, Matt, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, all the time and, and expertise you've shared with us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It was, it was a lot of fun. And, yeah, if anybody ever wants to get a hold of us and they're coming down this way, we love fishing with new people. So just let us know. And tune into your podcast, too. Uh, that's a good one and a good resource for folks as well. So uh, one more time, Matt, what was the name of that? Uh, the Midwest Angler Podcast. Midwest Angler Podcast. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Folks, uh, we're going to take a quick, quick break here, and then we're going to be back with our social fish dancing segment where we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about the outdoors and get a new perspective. We're going to visit with an individual who, uh, who works on the game and fish side of things, and I think it's going to give us some really cool insight into that part of the world and that part of the outdoor sports. We will be right back with more Shack Talk. Welcome back to Shack Talk. We are here in our third segment. We are in our social fish dancing segment. And as we've talked in previous episodes, this is the segment where we get to, we talk a little bit about some of the things we've lost during the pandemic this past year, almost a full year. The boat talks, the ice shack talks, the, the time in the outdoors when we have that ability to be social and, and to talk. And Anthony and I are very excited to welcome a, a friend of ours to this segment, we want to welcome Doug Lear, North Dakota game and fish outreach biologist, and also, by the way, host of the KFGO morning show weekday mornings on KFGO, the mighty 790 in Fargo, North Dakota. This guy does it all. Doug, welcome to Shack Talk. And what I, what I was upset is the, the next best thing to actually be in outdoors hunting and fishing is talking about the outdoors. And, you know, whether it's at the gas station or just you know in the back at, at the back of church on a sunday morning I, I i love visiting about the outdoors so my pleasure thanks for inviting me on and looking forward to the visit well doug you bring so many dynamics to this segment uh certainly as an outreach biologist you have that background and and i think we're going to tap into that probably uh first and foremost in this segment sure. but also you're you're a lover of the outdoor activities outdoor sports uh you 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 understand what folks are going through because i'm sure you're experiencing it firsthand during this last 10 11 months yeah we actually um a couple days ago we went out went out spearing and it's like you said the you know the end result is still 
kind of the same. And there's, there's a lot of things in life through this pandemic that have happened that way. It's just how do you get there? And, and, and I know there have been many things that have been canceled, many things that have been rescheduled. But when it comes down to the core, the heart of spending time outdoors, it, the, the end result for me specifically has, has stayed the same. The end result is about getting outdoors and making memories. And, you know, that's, that's what's going on. And it's just how we're getting there. That's, that's really been kind of uh, flipped upside down, Kyle. Well, Anthony, and I have said it many times this year, the outdoors has truly been the silver lining in this pandemic because number one, those of us who have made a practice of doing that anyway, could maintain that normalcy in our life. And number two, there were so many folks that now instead of going to a, a sporting event or a concert or, or you name it, any of these other events, they've turned and they've looked at the outdoors and said, hey, my dad used to do that, or I used to do that, or my grandpa used to do that, or I've never done it and want to try it, and they're doing it. And that's been a pretty cool thing. When it comes to the recruitment, the retention, the reactivation of hunters and anglers, you know, the reality is we this pandemic has recharged that to add another uh, another R to that because for the exact scenario that you're you're talking about, um, you you might have somebody that dad grew up and and took them hunting and fishing. They went off to college, they went into a different career field, and ended up in a in a big city or got busy with kids that were involved in other activities. And when those activities were you know were were canceled. There, there was, you know, literally you know, thousands of those stories that took place of, well, it, you know, started off last spring. Let's, let's go fishing. And it continued on in the, in the summertime with, well, you know what? Hey, never been canoeing for, before. Let's go canoeing. Let's, let's go camping. Let's go hiking. And there was almost a snowball. And we, we got into the fall. We, we saw that statistically in the number of anglers, whether it was, you know, no, no matter what state you, you want to talk about, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, you, you saw those numbers spike. And then it, the, the same scenario took place in the fall where maybe their, their own kids' activities were canceled. Maybe they were big into spectator sports and they'd spent the last 10 years on Saturday afternoons you know, going and watching a college football game. And prior to that, they had been out in the field pheasant hunting, grouse hunting, duck hunting, and goose hunting. And this fall, they, they looked at their options and staring right in front of them was a big rooster pheasant. So we, we've really seen a huge, a, a huge growth in interest in, in outdoor recreation. And again, you can look at any kind of metric that you want, whether it's from state parks and license sales to, to ammunition sales that, you know, across the the, the sale of summer sausage was probably up from people buying it and making summer sausage sandwich. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that happened too. The trickle effect, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when, for, for us professionally, when it came to whether it was a DNR or a game and fish, our, our jobs were still the same, just like it was for, you know, somebody that may have been in accounting. You still had the work, the book work had to be done how you did that, we saw more people out hunting. And so our game wardens were actually busier this fall because of a pandemic where the people that were selling tickets for a, a movie and a football game uh, didn't have, you know, any business, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Everybody was looking for that escape 
getting away, enjoying what they do. You touched on a little bit the resources, uh, being more people out and involved in the outdoors. Did that put a strain on any of the resources? And do you think that there'll be any impact to the resources going forward? That's a good point, Anthony. Is is when when you look at it, if you you know if you I, I often you know put things in like a parallel, whether it's a you know a college football game. If you can fit twenty thousand people in there and forty thousand people want to go, you don't have the the supply for the demand that is there. We we're we're really fortunate where I work in North Dakota is that we saw uh, you know stronger pheasant numbers, stronger deer numbers. Our waterfall and duck numbers have been, you know, strong really since 1993 when the water came back. I mean, we've had some bumps in the road, but for the most part, the waterfall numbers have been strong. Uh, fortunately, we had started to, to see, you know, some of our, our resident wildlife species, our grouse numbers, our partridge, our, our deer and our pheasant numbers growing. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I've focused a lot on, because you, you bring up a, a good point, is the fact that if, you know, if somebody hasn't been fishing in 30 years and they go out and they get skunked, well, you know what, There's, they, they might go back, but if they go out and they put a big smile on their face, whether it's from, you know, a fun trip with their daughter or son that they haven't done in a long time, or maybe they went out by themselves and they had that peace of mind that got away from, you know, what was dragging them down from the pandemic and work, or maybe literally being out of work and their business struggling. They got outdoors. They, they, they reset their mind and, you know, they, they caught a couple of walleyes and, and a big pike. And they said, let's go do this again. Because I'll tell you one thing. Um, I think we, we can all understand that is if you go to the restaurant and you have a bad experience, you're going to be a little hesitant to go back. And one of the big benefits that we have had is again, especially I'm, I'm talking really specific to North Dakota, but you know, arguably our fishing has been better than the good old days. I, I I've said that I, I keep on saying that is that we didn't think it could get any better 10 years ago. And it is. And that's, that's been a huge part of this. And we can't sit here and, and look ourselves in the mirror and say, well, you know, game and fish, we did just a, a fabulous job. The water came back in 93. Uh, we had um, a lot of moisture come through last winter into the summer leading into it. So we've had strong fisheries and strong fish populations. And that has really, really been a huge, huge asset to recruiting, retaining, and reactivating anglers uh, during this pandemic. Doug, so, you know, as you talk about waterfall, migrating waterfall, you talk about big game, you talk about uh, pheasants and, and upland birds, they're really at the mercy of the weather. And, and of course, hunting pressure plays a, plays a piece of that. We talk about fishing, right? And as we go into the ice fishing season right now, we're seeing a lot of folks out on the ice, a lot of folks enjoying that resource. From a game and fish perspective, is this an, is this a significant enough increase where they're maybe talking about anticipating increased stocking numbers or or other things like that to, to maybe kind of help with this yeah. increased demand? You know, you know, and Anthony kind of brought it up, and I didn't address it as much as I as I should have because when you when you have um, when you have more people wanting to sit at the table and eat, um, that does put it you know puts pressure on the wait staff, on the cooks, and 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 on the entire facility. So, is there more pressure on the fisheries? Absolutely. I'll tell you one thing that I've seen statistically. Um, you know, in ice fishing in a normal year, we probably get around 20 to maybe 25% of our, 
our fishing activity comes from ice fishing. I think it's going to be up this year because, again, look at last year. Um, access was difficult. We had a lot more snow. Um, one of the nice things when you, when you, you know, kind of talk about the, you know, the, the shack talk, being able to visit with people is, again, look at a, a weekend like, uh, you know, the, the most recent weekend. The, t- the air temperatures were warm enough that you didn't have to be sitting in a shack, so you could, you know, you could you could be out there visiting with other friends and family and not be inside a shack. Maybe potentially putting yourself at some health risk. You could be outside, and 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 that's been huge. So, I think the the field conditions, as in snow and ice, um, have been a little bit conducive to getting out there. So I, I don't necessarily see a a pressure on the resource yet. But to discount it, to discount it would be unprofessional. The other side of it, though, what we always talk about in North Dakota is we've seen such a boom when I talk about those those water and those fisheries numbers coming back since 1993 is we've got a lot of those sloughs that are 10, 15, 20 feet deep. And we saw this summer and going into this fall how dry it is. When we don't have the recharge of precipitation, especially in North Dakota, um, we start to run the risk over the over a couple of years of, of possible winter kill. And the last thing the last thing we want to do is is end up you know having winter kill wipe out a lake. So we always keep in mind, we always understand that we don't want to uh, you know totally wipe out a fishery, over harvest a fishery. But the balance comes back to is we could you, you could we could take your favorite slough. And wherever that is, whether it's Richland County, Dickey County, wherever that's at, and we could say that we're going to stop fishing this winter to to try to protect those perch, grow them a little bit bigger, grow the pike, and grow the walleye. And this April, we end up with winter kill. So, you know, saving a fishery, protecting a fishery has to come with also that mindset of, of utilizing the resource, you know, Protection just for the sake of protection doesn't necessarily, um, you know, we, we could close the pheasant season and have a nasty humdinger of a winter and nature takes out the, the pheasant population. We can, you know, we can overprotect the fishery and winter kill wipes it out. So we always, you know, we always have that in our mind that we want to make sure that we're not over harvesting a resource but we also want to make sure that the the anglers and and the hunters when it comes to pheasant are able to appreciate and and enjoy that resource rather than see um, dead fish rolled up as the ice goes off in may i think those are all great points and the focus for so long has been on getting recruitment for new anglers and new people in the outdoors, do you see a switch at all in trying to educate them maybe on being selective, utilizing the resources and, you know, kind of maybe a switch in how you guys are going about educating the the public? Yeah. And, and again, you know, I, I, I kind of hesitate a little bit when I, when, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to go too far about just yeah exploiting a resource, you know, on, on the other end of it, of saying, yeah, just go out there and, and open it up and let everybody take all the fish that they want so that they don't winter kill. And I, I, I think society and I think anglers um, have, have really done a, a great job over the last 30 years of, of, of actually understanding and appreciating catch and release. And, you know, to, to the point where sometimes 
um, we as game and fish have to make sure that we're responsive to the anglers uh, socially because we get the reports, whether it's from Channel A in the springtime or a small slough in south-central North Dakota that has um, 100 vehicles on it in a county that has 1,000 people. And you see you know, people driving three hours because social media allows them to, to find out on a Saturday morning that people are catching you know, 13-inch perch and they can come from all across the country and exploit that resource. So we, we try to you know, make sure that our job as conservation is, you know, is, is in that message because you're absolutely right. When an angler goes down to their freezer and you know, they still have pike from last winter in it, then you know, they, they need to be honest with themselves and, 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 and realize that there's, there's a conservation um, you know, there, there's a conservation responsibility from each angler. I, I think what, what honestly what I've seen is the, the younger anglers, the newer anglers might already have that ingrained in them. And, I, you know, I, I, I can be honest with myself and, and say that, you know, I, I grew up in an era where they're, you know, catch and release. That was, you know, something for other people. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, the education component of that is maybe, you know, needs to be directed on, you know, the, the veteran and the long-term anglers. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to, to paint a broad brush, but you, you brought up a great point, Anthony, in that, and one thing I would say from my line of work is I, I think, I think the, uh, you know, the, the new anglers coming, being brought into the fold, whether they're 15 years old or somebody that's 50 years old that's never fished before, they might be, um, more well-versed at catch and release than, than some of our, ourselves that have been doing this for 30 years or for 50 years. You know, Doug, I, I always use the analogy on that because you're spot on. I grew up at a time when we didn't wear seatbelts as a kid, right? And then yeah. that became more uh, socially uh, acceptable and to the point where it was it was actually enacted into law. But it was harder for me to, to make that change in behavior than it was for those kids, like my kids that grew up just knowing you get in a vehicle, you put a seatbelt on. Same thing with that catch-release, uh, selective harvest mentality. Yeah, no, you, you, you're absolutely right. Is it, it, you know, that's their normal. You know, jumping in the truck, putting on a seatbelt is their normal. And, you know, <laughs> in all honesty, after I went fishing with my dad last Sunday, and Dad, you don't got your seatbelt on. You know, I mean, that's, you know, 76 years old, they still have to be reminded to put their seatbelt on. And, 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 and that's, you know, going back to the point of it, is you know that's where we as as an angling community can help each other out because you know i i you know you, you go back to how much how much is enough i i grew up in an era when we didn't have panfish limits in north dakota and quite honestly um just you know th- those 75 year old anglers they still struggle to figure well why do we need panfish limits now we didn't have them in 1985 and we had hardly any fish now we got fish all over the place and you got a limit on them what that doesn't make sense Boy, oh boy, that is some great, great insight. We're talking with Doug Lear, North Dakota Game and Fish Outreach Biologist. Doug, I've got one more question before we uh, we wrap things up here. But before I ask you that question, I do want to go back, because I think there's a correction that needs to be made. You A little while back, you said uh, Game and Fish doesn't deserve a lot of credit just because of all the waters and the flood. I have to uh, disagree with you. I think Game and Fish... In whatever state you're in, whether whether it be a D- Department of Natural Resources, Game and Fish, I can say in North Dakota, I think does a fantastic job of 
managing a resource that's available for sportsmen and outdoor enthusiasts, making it available, but still keeping the future in mind. So kudos to you and, and to all of the folks there at Game and Fish, because that is not an easy thing to balance the demands and requests and expectations of all those different groups of people. No, and, and I appreciate that because uh, when, when we have an, uh, an outdoors community that understands that, you know, from, you know, Williston to Wapiton, you, you might have an angler that goes out and catches, you know, uh, a 14-inch walleye for the first time in their life, and that is the greatest day of their, their, their outdoors recreation at 55. Um, you go down and to Wapiton, and you might have somebody that, you know, catches four walleyes, that are 16 to 18 inches, and they're mad because they didn't catch that fifth one. So it, it, it's, a, it, it's tough trying to put that word success or win in a definition from every unique individual angler. But I, I, I think we smile right here and right now because, again, I, I still believe it that as uh, you know, as hopefully a middle-aged outdoor angler and hunter, is that I'm living in the good old days right now. I, I, I re- you know, sure we've had stronger pheasant numbers and deer numbers at you know years gone by, but especially when it comes to fishing, it's really hard to argue uh, in North Dakota that uh, that this isn't the good old days because I think we're living it. Yeah, and to echo what Kyle said, I think it comes down to us as anglers, outdoorsmen, to educate, and that's kind of our point with this segment and all the segments within shack talk is to share that information, especially to those people joining the sport, you know, defining success, defining, you know, what the respecting the resources are. So I think it's just great that we can have this conversation, get the information out to anglers and just provide a better understanding of the resource to everyone. No. And and you guys are absolutely right. Is that, that's how we do it. And, you know, I, I appreciate um, Anthony and Kyle and, and, and Shaq talk as well, because that, that's how you spark those conversations. So when people are um, out ice fishing, when people are, um, you know, enjoying some time outdoors, that they can, that they can have those and, and, and realize that, you know, this is, this is what we need to do. If, if we want to make sure that our kids or our grandkids or our neighbors and our friends can enjoy the outdoors like we are, then, then that's, it, it's all of our job. It's not somebody else's job for catch and release. It's our job. Exactly. And we're all learning Kyle, myself. I mean, every conversation that we have, you maybe pick up another little bit of information that you can use as you move forward. And that's what we're all about. Yep. Absolutely. I, I really enjoy uh, having the discussion and it's, it's like, I, you know, like I said at the beginning, the next best thing, you know, for, for us three to, to be out ice fishing, to be out um, catching fish is to be talking about it. So I can, you know, this is, this is a win. This is success by, by, by my definition, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Well, Doug, thanks again for your time. Um, if anybody listening has any questions, you know, obviously utilize the resources that you have, your game and fish, your department of resources. There's a lot of great information out there. Reach out to Kyle or myself if you have any questions and, you know, thank you to Eskimo, everyone that puts the podcast on, gives us the opportunity to talk with all of you. And until next time, be safe, distance socially, and get out fishing. Uh-huh.